Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Harvard University won the lawsuit against it that had claimed it discriminated against Asian Americans in its admissions process. But the public debate over affirmative action is far from over. I spoke with Margaret Chin, professor of sociology at the CUNY Graduate Center in New York City and herself an Asian-American who attended Harvard as the daughter of Chinese immigrants and now studies the impact and differences for diverse communities of prejudice and stereotypes and programs such as affirmative actions that try to alleviate past injustice and create diversity, two very different rationales. Listen to my conversation with Margaret, which is both informed by her deep research and very personal about her own experience. I was moved to hear her story and inspired to see how she's turned it into practices and ways of improving the lives of all Americans. So welcome. I'm sitting here with Margaret Chin. So first of all, Margaret, thank you so much for joining me on Think About It. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Margaret, you teach sociology at CUNY. So your degrees in sociology, you look at the experience of immigrants, of work, of families, especially focused on different types of immigrant experiences. Yeah, in particular, I look at immigrants to the U.S. So in the past, I've looked at working class immigrants, mostly. Um, I had a city. I have a book out on sewing women. So I looked at Am- Amazing class. study. Oh, thank you. Thank Where you, you looked at the garment industry in New York, Korean immigrants, Chinese, and then Ecuadorian, Honduran, Latin American, and how different their experiences are. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And how, you know, lots of times the immigrant community helps, but you would be surprised that sometimes the immigrant community can also hinder. And that's what my book was about. And hinder in what sense? Hinder in um, in terms of wages, hinder in terms of them not being able to share their experiences with each other sometimes. Um, and sometimes you would expect... Uh, when it always benefits, immigrants sometimes give up a little bit, like in terms of wages, like in the Chinese community. The women got to work flexible hours, but they couldn't get as high of a wage as some of the, at that time, what we would call um, undocumented Latinos. Interesting, although they were in the same community sometimes, but it didn't benefit them in a way. So people in mixed communities or not co-ethnic, as you call them, right? Mm-hmm, There's a exactly. different kind of benefit. Yes, yeah, a different kind of benefit. So, so your work and why I wanted to talk to you is it's interesting that you're saying 
there are different benefits. Some are good, some are less good for immigrant communities. And then what we're really here for to talk about is this case, which the public is really consumed with Harvard, a tiny school in the northeast of America that has such symbolic reach for Americans. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, well, as you said, the reason I'm here is because of the affirmative action case, right? And the ruling that just happened with Harvard. And Harvard is symbolic because in 1976, it was cited in the Bakke case in its... um, in its so-called good, uh, very good um, uh, emissions process, and how it was just reaffirmed in this particular case, uh, the SFFA case versus Harvard, um, and how their emissions process is still a very good process, in fact. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And the case, remind our listeners, of there was a case brought against Harvard University that their admissions policies discriminate against Asian Americans. Yes. Right? Yes. That's the idea of this case. Yes. So the case was brought by um, a group called um, Students for Fair Admission, but mostly led by Edward Bloom. Um, Edward Bloom was, you should know before I talk about the cases, he was a man who also brought uh, cases uh, to get rid of race-conscious affirmative action, race-conscious admissions at University of Texas. He lost both cases. That was the um, Fisher versus Texas case. He also has a standing case right now against University of North Carolina, as well as um, Texas again. (laughs) And he just lost this uh, Harvard case. So this man is um, what I call anti-civil rights activist. He also uh, gutted the Voting Rights Act. He also signed an amicus brief just recently supporting the... um, uh, having the citizenship question on the 2020 census. So this man is not a friend of African Americans, not a friend of Asian Americans, and not a friend of Latinos and immigrant communities. And yet he's framed this case as if he's sort of defending the rights of Asian Americans. Somehow he turned this case into, a, and the public, has, the media had picked that up. Yeah, so um, what he did was after he lost the uh, Fisher cases, um, he decided... I think it was Alito. I can't remember. I think um, um, in the decision, he mentioned that, what about Asian Americans? And I can't remember the exact quote, but then he actually went out to look for Asian Americans. He said, you know what? This could be a case, and I needed Asian Americans. He went out to um, to recruit Asian Americans to be the new um, uh, plaintiffs in this case, um, to say that there was discrimination against them. And um, he was successful in recruiting some Asian Americans to file, um, saying that Harvard discriminated against them during the application process. But his, um, but his relief was exactly the same as in the Fisher cases, which was to remove race-conscious emissions. Right. That's, I've actually talked about this on this podcast, that the prayer for relief, which sort of in the last couple of pages, what he asked for was what? Um, is to removal of race, the use of race in all of the emissions processes so that no uh, every applicant would not be able to use their names, uh, use pictures, use videos, be able to name themselves. But not even talk about where they come from. Not even talk who about their where parents, they their grandparents were. So if they said, my grandparents grew up in a different place or this is my last name or this is my cultural identity. 
you can't talk about that anymore. No, you can't talk about that. So That's first of all, that would make it rather difficult to admit anybody to college. Right, right exactly. And it would really make it difficult. Let, let's say a student was president of the Black Students Association, president of the Asian American Club oh, interesting. in high school. So how does that count as leadership? Right. You know, so what if a student's a great dancer? Right. You know, can they send a video in? Right. You or know. if they do a culturally specific dance, which is unusual Let's not see. to be practiced, possible, of course, but unusual. Unusual. So it makes it very difficult for anybody who is of, of a different racial group. And so you found some Asian-American parents, probably, or students who said, we're going to be the plaintiffs in this case. But then he ran with this case and said, my, old, my goal is to get race out of the admissions process. This sentence to get race out of the admissions process resonates with a lot of people who say, well, wouldn't that be more f- fair? to not look at race at all. It wouldn't be in a colorblind society. And I think, um, I don't know whether it was uh, one of the justices who said 25 years from now, maybe we'll be in a place where race... Sandra O'Connor. Sandra O'Connor said, we don't have to consider race anymore. It was a bit optimistic, perhaps. (laughs) Yes, I think it was very optimistic. And I think um, this judge, Judge Allison Burroughs of the Massachusetts court basically said that, you know, race still matters in everyday life. And we're going to keep doing this until race is no longer mm-hmm. a fact, the fact that everybody sees first. So can you summarize this ruling for our listeners, sort of what she decided and why is race a factor and why is achieving a racially diverse class or ethnically diverse class a good thing? Yeah, so um, uh, what she basically says is that, you know, if you go to a school with a racially diverse class, that means that you have a racially diverse learning environment. And all of the facts that came out through uh, the Harvard case show that you have to use race as just one little bit of a factor, of, of hundreds of factors, um, when you look at the admissions of class, when you admit students, to have a class that is racially diverse. And once you have a class that's racially diverse, what she argues is that then students there can learn from everybody in the classroom, hear voices of different opinions from the classroom, from eating halls, from, um, from living with them, sleeping with them, being on teams with them, being in extracurriculars with them. And basically, you learn about what society ought to be like mm-hmm. and what society will be like in the future. And hopefully, you can be a what Harvard calls a citizen leader mm-hmm. in that kind of society. And so she believes that if you have an environment like that, a diverse learning environment, It'll help everybody, not just the black students or Asian-American students or the Latino students, but the white students, too. So when I um, I actually testified in the case. So I have to say that for me, when I was a student at Harvard. So you were brought in and based on your work as a sociologist working on immigrant experiences in America? No. So (laughs) I was brought in as um, as basically um, I went to Harvard. So I graduated class from 1984. Um, I also, um, um, when I got there, I also uh, worked in the admissions office as an undergraduate, working in a, in a program called the Undergraduate Minority Recruitment Program, which was, at their time, their affirmative action program. Okay. So I actually worked in the affirmative wow. action program when I got there in 1980 through 1983, recruiting all students, not just Asian Americans, but everybody. And I myself was recruited. Um, I didn't think about going to Harvard. You grew up in New York City? I grew up in New York City, and um, I grew up in the projects on the Upper West Side. Um, So I grew up with mostly poor people. 
Okay. Mostly poor black and Latinos. Okay. I was one of the few Asian American families who lived in the projects. Okay. I lived, if you know Lincoln Center, you'll know that there's a wall, and on the other side of the wall, Amsterdam Avenue, oh, yes. there are the projects. On 10th Avenue, I On think. 10th Avenue, That's exactly. Right. <laughs> so when you grow up in the projects, you know that, oh, there's a wall there. And Lincoln Center, a gleaming white marble is exactly. on, on the, on the west and on the, on the east and the west of yeah. your projects. Okay. How, how more symbolic can it get, right? So you grew up right next to wealth, privilege, prestige, exactly. and Harvard wasn't on your radar at that Harvard point. Harvard wasn't on my radar. And in fact, um, my parents thought it was too far. So, but I went in uh, 1979, I believe, yeah, 1979 to a college fair in Chinatown because my friend dragged me and said, come on, let's go look at colleges. And I said, okay, I'll go. And there were these Harvard students there, Asian-American students, recruiting. And they said, hey, have you thought about applying to Harvard? I go, no, why? I, my parents think it's too far. Well, you should at least apply. If you get in, you should go look. And that's what I did. Okay. And I liked it. Yeah. So that's my whole background. Interesting. So you came in, first of all, as a student who wasn't really, let's say, in the classics and destined because Harvard is really a place for people who already had access to all sorts of yeah. elite institutions, right? Went to great high schools, all this. I mean, Harvard is symbolic for America because it's, on the one hand, kind of access to a different class. And at the same time, it's reinforcing privilege and the elite, right? It's Ex been the place where the elite was trained exactly. for centuries, for centuries. Yeah, centuries, since before the beginning of the U America, <laughs> right, right? Right, right, right. Right, So when I got there, coming from a poor community, and this is what I talked about as a witness, I had never met so many wealthy, wealthy people. Okay. And I met wealthy whites, Asian Americans, blacks, and Latinos. I learned about something called the Jack and Jill Society there. Mm -hmm. You know, so... It was important for me to see people of all different races from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay. And I think now when I look back on it, America is so segregated now, so yeah. segregated by race that it would behoove everybody and it would be an advantage for everybody, for everybody to meet people from all walks of life yeah. so, on that campus. So your testimony was really about your experience and how it benefited you. Mm -hmm. Right. Can you say something about the benefit to white students? Because on a lot of podcasts, people have talked about that the role of minority students is not to educate people like me. Right. So I'm a white student. I went to Harvard. I was recruited, full disclosure, as an athlete. Uh -huh. I'm one of those kids, actually, okay. who they should I, get yeah. rid of that program right away. Right. But so there's an argument that's used that diversity is good for white people to learn about other people. But that's not what you're saying. You say it's good for everyone. Yeah, I, I'm saying it's good for everyone. So for me, it was good for me to see mm -hmm. everybody from different walks because I would have to deal with everybody later on. Right. You know, when you graduate from any college, you're going to be in a work world right. that will have everybody, right. right? So if you graduate from college in a knowledge-based society now, when we all graduate from college, including my students from Hunter, Yeah. You actually have to work with everybody. And, uh, so it actually would behoove everybody to be able to meet. And how was the experience at Harvard arriving there from, you know, 10th Avenue and 50, whatever, 65th oh. Street or something like that? Quite a different world. Quite a different world. It was quite shocking. Really? Quite shocking. It was quite um, um, shocking for me. to. I've never met so many wealthy white people in my life, is what I said. And I was actually very surprised that people still call people Oriental at that time. And I thought... Okay. <laughs> Right. Wait, I need to pause for a moment. Right, right, okay. right, right. So, a word we don't really use anymore, which is also really interesting that this has been retired for most people, I guess. 
Yes, <laughs> I guess. So even at that time, I thought it was retired. So <laughs> so people they has referred to you or other people as Oriental. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's how come I mean it's. <laughs> you learn something. You learn something from everybody, and then yeah. you, it's up to you to say what did you just say, and then okay. you have to correct. So yeah. sometimes it is hard on uh, people of color yeah. to have to always try to um, defend, but it's also. I'm asking you, as a white, wealthy white woman, right. why would you say that too? So they would have to explain to me what kind of background did you come from to learn that experience. And I think what's so interesting about college in America is it's the moment when you leave your parents and your family, really. So maybe your parents and your family had different values and expressed them in ways that are no longer acceptable. So the, for the first time, you're being challenged to say, why do you keep on saying that? You're invoking a system of values, a set of values that does something to me and to you that maybe in their enclosed world they weren't aware of at all. Right, exactly, exactly. So that's why I think it benefits many people. <gasps> or yeah. they were aware of it entirely. Yeah. That's the other part I wanted to point out. Yes. That maybe they're fully aware of it and they just kept on using it and suddenly someone calls them out mm-hmm. and says, I'm a student here as well and you cannot just keep on doing that. I right. think that's the other part about student life that... Another student can say, uh, that's not acceptable. Right, right. And that's a good part about student life, right. that you can, you can actually say that. Right. And I think that's, where, um, that's why that diverse learning imp- environment right. is so important. And let me ask something about this, another argument. So some people, so I, I mentioned before we went on the show, Professor Randall Kennedy at Harvard said he believes the argument for affirmative action is reparative justice. Mm-hmm. He said it is not about making everybody be in this diverse learning environment. He said it is really to combat hundreds of years of systematic discrimination and exclusion that lasts until today. And he said affirmative action programs actually restore or for the first time create some level of equality that is owed everybody. So he says it's a reparative justice argument, not a diverse learning environment argument. And he said the, the two get conflated, and he just takes the other tack in a way. Did that come up in the lawsuit as well? Um, it didn't come up in the lawsuit, but I agree. I agree with um, Professor Kennedy. Um, but it didn't come up in the lawsuit because legally where we are is that we have right. to affirm or defend um, a diverse learning environment because mm-hmm. that's where we are at. Mm-hmm. And I think until we are actually discussing reparations as a whole in the country, I'm not quite sure we're ready to discuss reparations and affirmative action or go that far back yet. Interesting. Yeah, that's what I'm You think because feeling... reparation is too big a political um, issue right now? Yeah. I mean, like, there are colleges that are, like Georgetown, of, of course, right. you know, because they actually had, um, you know, they sold their slaves <laughs> and they built their way, their wealth and their college, you know. And they responded recently. So this was kind of, this is a a story that I think is really important that had been known for a long time, Mm -hmm. especially to African-Americans. And then suddenly it hits the news and suddenly, in quotation marks, Georgetown discovers its own history. That happened about a year and a half ago. And then what Georgetown, what did they do in response? So what I believe they did was they said that anybody who is actually a descendant um, will be able to come to the college. Right. So there's a form of reparation in a way for grave injustice. They sold people's ancestors for profit, which is unimaginable today. But at least we can do something here to the descendants of these people. Reparations on a larger scale would be, is affirmative action one tool to say, actually, you provide people economic benefits that they were deprived of for so long. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that will, I mean, like, I think the people who were in this case, 
many people complain that you're only fighting for this, defending diverse education environment. But the thing is, many of us know that, yes, we are, but that's where we're at right now. And, and you're meaning also that where we're at, that was legally useful, right? Yes. It's also, also tactical, sort of let's use a strategy that we think would get us to where we want to get to. Yes, right? you're, you're absolutely right on that. So yeah. when the ruling came down, were you, what, was your, what was your feeling? What was your sense? I mean, it took a long time. People were waiting for it. What, how did you feel, actually? It's the alma mater. I assume you liked being at Harvard as on the experience as a whole. As a whole on the yeah, whole? as a whole, um, I believe the admissions process is much uh, better than the college itself. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> so, so I like my. <laughs> you worked in the admissions office, right? Right. I like the. Uh, I, I like being at Harvard. So that's number one. And then um, the admissions office um, really tried to bring in a diverse group of students. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, the college environment itself doesn't have ethnic studies. Um, many Asian Americans feel like they don't teach history, Latin, American, uh, Latino students also feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, many minority students actually feel like they're not uh, recognized, they don't have a space. Um, so there are still things that Harvard needs to work on. And can I add something to this? So when they say there's no ethnic studies department, no Latinx, no Asian American, this history isn't taught, don't people say, oh, they teach everything, they teach just general history? Isn't everything offered at Harvard? Yeah. Well, they do. They teach everything offered at Harvard. But what would be nice is if there was, you know, Asian American history is now, you know, a couple hundred years old, right? There's a lot to teach. Oftentimes, there's not enough room to spend a week, two weeks on it. So it would be nice to have uh, something that's taught about Asian Americans. And it's not just about history. Sometimes it's literature. Sometimes it's sociology. It could be all kinds of things that are important. Um, And I think that's a part of a a curriculum that not just Asian Americans could benefit. Yeah, All students could benefit. It would be a true history of America also. Exactly. um, And one that covers everything. Yes, exactly. And the admissions office, you think, is doing a better job than their college. The college still has work to do. When the ruling when the came out, what was your mm. sense? Were you happy, relieved, or thinking, ah, oh, well, let's uh, see? Yeah, so so I was actually I was very happy um, of the um, of the ruling mm-hmm. because you know it affirms this, it affirms their admissions process. Uh, the judge also said that they had some work to do, which I also believe that they do. Maybe mm. some implicit bias training. Mm. The judge also said that they, uh, I think, before and I think it was last February, at the closing. Right. They said that the SFFA was missing um, plaintiffs to say that there was discrimination. And Harvard also had some, uh, maybe they should think about the personal rating. And the personal rating difference was minuscule. I think it was point five hundredths of a difference between whites and Asian Americans. But maybe they could... What is the personal things. rating? What does that mean? Uh, the personal rating was um, was a rating that I think a lot of people have caught on, um, have basically complained about. In this case, seeing that, well, Harvard must be discriminating because the personal rating oh, was oh, actually that. higher for whites than so for. So this is the the, the the box on the application where a, an applicant is rated for personality. Is that correct? Yeah, is but that, not personality. What is personal it rated rating. for? <laughs> so personal ra- rating is actually um, something that includes. Like if they're a leader, right? Leadership, character, ambition, ambition, moral compass. Yeah, something moral compass, and also things that are included in there that they didn't look at are uh, teacher and counselor recommendations and their personal essays. Okay. 
So what they did was they looked at that box and they said, well, Harvard must be discriminating because that was one of the scores mm-hmm. that Asian Americans mm-hmm. seemed to be getting lower on. Mm-hmm. And what the judge also said was that, you know, the score difference between whites and Asian Americans was actually very, very small. So can we stay with that for a moment? So uh, I've said this to you. I have a lot of friends who ask me about the admissions process and say, and they actually have this perception. I say, I'm really hesitant to disclose that we're Asian American because I think it's going to be a disadvantage. They hear this a lot. They say, especially in the IVs, it's going to be so much harder to get in. So that has been a story out there. And I think their focus on this issue that they'll be ranked lower in some category. Right, right. So you're absolutely right. So I think there is too much focus on this. And um, and that's why I brought it up, that the score was actually minuscule difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole reason for doing this is that they want to Harvard in a holistic admissions process. Mm-hmm. They want to look at all of these different um, categories of what it means to be have multiple successes, right, right. is what Harvard wants to look at. Right. Uh, multiple levels. So it's not just about your score, right? Right, Because nobody go, walks around and say, you know, I have perfect right. SAT scores, therefore I should get into Harvard. In fact, there were so many people who applied, I think 3,400 who had right. perfect yes. <laughs> SAT reading, 2,700 that had perfect SAT math, and I think over 3,000 that had perfect GPA. Yeah, if they admitted all of them, they would double, double their class. Right, drug. exactly. So they can't just look at that, but they have to look at all these different things. Mm. And so what it look, what the ruling states is that you look at Asian Americans as well as all kids as a whole person. And for them to be able to say that mm. they're Asian American, for them to be able to say that they're, um, that they're, that they, yeah, that they're a whole person, that they're, mm-hmm. they're uniquely themselves. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes them important. Mm-hmm. And that's why they should go to a place like Harvard mm-hmm. or any other school they right. want to apply to. I want to go back to something when you said the admissions office is doing a bit better than the college. And to go back to your experience, so you were an Asian-American student in sort of in a generation when there weren't that many Asian-American students at Harvard, right? It wasn't on your radar. How do you think this... How do you think Asian Americans feel, or how do you feel as an alumni right now, saying Asian Americans are kind of this huge debate? Are they, should they be at Harvard? Are there not enough of them at Harvard? People look at the numbers. Did they get in? Did they not get in? It's kind of this plaything of politics. But this is experiences of people's lives in a way. I always feel, what does that feel like when the group you belong to and you also study and represent is turned into a political football. Yeah, so um, so I'll give you a little bit of history of the Asian Americans at Harvard. So in 1976 or 75, I believe, um, Asian Americans weren't included in the affirmative action process. Hmm. So um, when Asian American students got in at that particular time, they were only 2.5% of the class. Um, there were a couple Asian-Americans who went to this minority banquet because it was listed on their... I remember this case. Yes, right? go ahead. It was listed. So this was after they got in. So they were listed, and then they went to this banquet, and then they realized that they said, you're not welcome here because you're not a minority student. You're not part of this process. So that was the first part at the college when they said, wait a minute, we're not included? And then I think... What happened was other minority students, as well as Asian Americans, advocated to the college and advocated to the admissions office that, hey, we should be included because we are very, we need to be looked at too. Right. Because at that point in America, 
there are very few Asian Americans. There is a stereotype of the model minority in 1976, um, 1966, that William Peterson wrote about. So success. that's already existed in the 60s, this, the this, 60s. this idea, this stereotype that Asian Americans... Are a success story. A success story. Interesting. Right. But at the same time, they're 2.5% of their incoming class in 10 years later even. So how far does that success story carry people? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that's where you can see a little bit of a difference. So the emissions office said, okay, we're going to start looking at them because we realize that they actually have a history in this country and that we shouldn't look at them through this stereotype. They're mm -hmm. much more diverse than this stereotype. So the emissions office started including them. And then for me, I was part of that process. They actually came to Chinatown mm -hmm. to look for working class Chinese Americans because mm -hmm. they realized not everybody's part of the success story. Right. And so that's how I ended up going there. Right. And so the history is that affirmative action has actually been a safeguard. It's actually helped Asian Americans all along. So in my class, there were, I think, an admissions 6% uh, of the class were Asian Americans. And now for the class of 2023, over 25% of the class is Asian American. We're coming, Asian Americans as a whole in the country is coming close to six to 7% of the population now. So, you know, but Asian Americans as a whole is still a very diverse group. So back to Harvard for a little bit. So over time, so you see that admissions rate from six to 7%. Mm -hmm. You see Asian Americans coming in, their class uh, admissions um, has been increasing over time. It's been going up and down over time, fluctuating with the immigration rate, and actually showing that no more than 22% of the application pool has actually been Asian Americans. Other people are saying they're over 50% of the application pool, but it's not true. So over time, you can actually see, and the judge actually has a graph of this in her files, if you want to look at it. It shows that there hasn't been any quota against Asian Americans. There hasn't been any um, um, ceilings put. There hasn't been any, uh, hmm. uh, what do you call, what else was there? I think the main thing was quotas. Right. But the fluctuations show that they've been looking at Asian Americans, looking at Asian Americans as a diverse group, as Asian Americans become more diverse since the 1970s to now. I think now they're over, I don't know, 26 different Asian American ethnic groups, probably right. more, Right. you know, more so in languages. And I think that's what, um, when you look at Asian Americans holistically, that makes a difference. Which I think is happening in different, in a lot of different immigrant communities. I think there's sort of this idea of Latinx as encompasses more than a continent. And then there's, you know, the African American community, which is different through African immigration. So there's a huge kind of really interesting conversation of what qualifies as this particular group that the United States, for better or for worse, defines for a few decades in a certain way. And then suddenly they realize, wow, we're putting people in or we're leaving people out. So this is an evolving conversation, what you're saying, that it shouldn't be this one-size-fits-all Asian Americans. And even the idea of affirmative action for Asian Americans has to be pretty complex because there's so many different people in this group, right? Right, exactly. So that's why I, I look at it as, as a safeguard for all of the groups. Yeah, yeah. You know, and when you look at race, you look very carefully. And we know race is still, you know, very much in effect. When I walk down the street, people still sometimes see me as, you know, they don't know I'm an American born, you know, and, and you know, like other people, sometimes I have been told to go back to my country and I go, but 
this is my country. Right. This is the only country I really do know. You know. How does it, how can that be counted? And college should be the place where that's actually sort of. I have this kind of idealized version of college that should be where everybody gets admitted on their merits, and once they're there, they actually have equal rights of participation, of opportunity, of access. So nobody should be looked at and say, "Well, you're not really." a member of this community, which I think has also been one of the strange arguments about affirmative action. So there's pe there are people you know, in all sorts of schools who say affirmative action creates a kind of stigma or a kind of burden. Yes, that's absolutely right. So part of that burden comes from when you use the word merit. So merit many times can be construed. It's socially constructed, right? right. Merit. So many communities or many people will just say merit just means academic scores, standardized test scores. Uh -huh. But in effect, at Harvard, they're saying you have different kinds of merit, and merit is much more expansive. Okay. And they know that, you know, test scores are completely correlated with parents' education and parents' income, right? And also the kinds of schools that you have access to. Yeah, I and think that Lani Guinea wrote this book and said the SAT predicts two things reliably, parents' income and zip code. Exactly. That's the only thing it predicts, and it doesn't predict student success after the first year. Exactly. It totally evens out. No matter what your score was, you're going to do well or not well, depending on many other factors. Exactly. And so that's what happens at Harvard. People who go there end up equaling out, equaling out and so that you're all equal. So the stigma exists because people have this concept of what merit is. That, right? the one, that there's only one category and you get in on this. Mm -hmm. And then you also keep on performing in this way, which right. is not true. Which is not true. Right. And it's also not true that the students at Harvard have lower, uh, this category, lower, st lower test scores and everything. Okay. Almost everybody who gets in yeah. has this rating of a two in academic so category. Can we stay with this stigma? I think Stephen Carter, someone at Yale who's written yes, about yes, this, right? Yes, He's an yes. affirmative action baby, kind of. And Randall Kennedy also said, he said, I'm an affirmative action baby. Yeah, something. and I am too, yeah. So they use these terms. They're not babies. They're grown scholars. Right. So when you look at that also as a scholar, this stigma or this kind of sense, how, um, what does it do to students and how can it be undone? And this lawsuit, I think, is detrimental in the following way, that it creates another what you said, it pits people against one another. And people start looking at each other and saying, you probably got in because of this or that, because they use one lens only. Yes, exactly. So this, this particular stereotype, this particular, I don't know if you want to call it a stigma, but this particular uh, way of looking at merit yeah. is being used over and over again. They, SFFA, the lawsuit, it makes people... I have to say, it's not just this lawsuit, but it's actually a big, bigger uh, with affirmative action. It makes people think that because you are only getting in, because you have a lower score, therefore you don't belong. And people don't want to associate, they don't, they don't want to think about affirmative action programs as being a way of giving you more access, giving you more opportunity. And that's really what they are. So they keep on focusing only on scores. They want to try to see some correlation that affirmative action doesn't value the scores highly, and the score is the only one they want to look at, whereas in a holistic review, many, many other factors shape this decision, right? Right, shape this decision. So, mm -hmm. so, so when you look at the scores only, which isn't, which is what I'm trying to say is that it's not true for people who get in. Right. For all these people who get in, it's actually not true. They all do well. But what it does is it also, for the future, let's say, it dampers 
any kind of affirmative action or diversity programs. Mm -hmm. That's what it really does, because it makes people feel ashamed that they need these kinds of programs. Mm -hmm. But what these programs do is provide opportunity. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of, um, so I just wrote this book called Stuck, why, do, why Asian Americans Don't Make It to the Top of the Corporate Ladder. It's a good title. Thank it's you. It's a bamboo ceiling kind of, right? right. That's what another metaphor people have yes, used, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. So in that particular case, so when people leave the college environment... So tell me again the title of the book, Stuck, stuck Why Asian why Americans American Don't Make It to the Top, top of the Corporate Ladder, yeah. right? Okay. So when people... So in my book, when I interview people, many people don't say that they've ever had affirmative action programs. They don't admit it because actually, they actually feel ashamed. That they actually had that, and these are Asian okay. Americans. So, because of this stigma that's attached, people are afraid of looking for these programs, afraid of using these programs, or they are afraid of they don't even know these programs exist. And in effect, they actually help African Americans, Latinos, mm -hmm. Asian Americans, women. They've helped all these people all along, mm -hmm. and so that people should actually search for these types of programs. So when people don't talk about this part of their own story, what have you found? What is the result of that? The, well, the result of it is that they, they kind of want to hide. They kind of want to hide. And that's the result of it where I think it's also connected to they also want to hide their racial identity. So they want to kind of pass or is... Uh, Kenji Yoshino wrote this right. book, Covering, right? right? So they want to sort of, what do they want to pretend in a way? It's sort of, it's kind of to buy into this idea that they made it on this one on narrow idea of their own and nothing else was a factor? Yes. So they want to say they made it by working hard. Which is what white people say all day long because I rarely have to identify as who I am, a white male, because it's just the given. Right. So I can say all of my grand achievements, whatever they are, mediocre as they may be, they're all based on my hard work. Right. And so I never have to acknowledge that I just already looked the part right. in more ways than just looking the part because people expected me to be in this space, in this role, succeed. Right. And, right. They, and because they expect you to be in this space, they've never questioned you. And if you, and if, I never made, said, if you make a mistake. If I make a mistake, it's fine. It's fine. If you I misspeak, it. I make an error, I get the date wrong. I'm like, well, he probably knows his stuff, but he made an error. Here. Yeah. I he, can maybe correct he didn't myself. sleep last night. Exactly. You know, whatever. Whatever. Exactly. whatever, right? <laughs> but for every other group, that's not the case. Right. And that's how come I think some people feel it's a burden. Mm -hmm. But in many ways, I feel like it's mm -hmm. not a burden. It's because this is the way it is in the right. United States. And if that opportunity is given to you, you should probably take it because you have fewer networks, you have fewer sponsors, mm -hmm. fewer mentors. And for Asian Americans in particular, what I found at the highest level, they actually aren't trusted as much either. Really? Yes. By coworkers? By coworkers, because there is a stereotype that in particular Chinese Americans and all along that Asian-Americans have been sneaky, have been... I teach Jacob Rees, How the Other Half yes, Lives with my yes. students, which is the book about how, Ameri how New York is an immigrant city, 1880s. Then there's a health crisis because people realize bacteria and viruses don't make stops when the, suddenly the rich are in the way, so they, everybody yes. gets sick, so they have to deal with the tenements. And the chapter on the Chinese is probably one of the most egregious racial stereotyping, and they say the Chinese can't be trusted. They're shifty. They never quite become Americans. And it's very, it's kind of that stereotype is sort of what you're saying, that they're sort of, 
there's a, there's a sense of not being fully Americanized or something like that, a yes. lack of trust. Yes, and so that stereotype hmm. we don't we don't really talk about as much, but but the part about they're not really American, the part of us being forever foreign. That's why they tell us to go back home. So how do you counter that? Do you think when you talk to students today? When so you have been through this process. You went to you know Harvard and Columbia. You're a professor now, and you study this now, right? So how do you? What's the next step to be unstuck or to <laughs> to be unstuck? <laughs> I don't know what the word. Well, part of it is to be the part of what the whole um, the whole person emissions is about is to be authentically yeah. you, right? Yeah. So you want to be able to tell people your story. And if you're not able to tell people your whole story, right. that's when you become this, you get erased. You become the stereotype. And so that's why I believe race-conscious emissions, holistic okay. emissions yeah, is yeah. so important. Yeah. And it's so important for our students to be able to, to, to be able to voice their whole self. Right. To be uniquely you is what people need to learn to do. And I'm kind of interested in what you said much earlier about the curriculum at Harvard, which has symbolic significance. It's, I'm sure they get educated you know, in good ways, but symbolically it means, is there a story of America that America tells itself that is true about America? I don't like to use the word inclusive. I think it's kind of a weird evasion mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm. sort of, as if there's an end point. But right. it's true that, for example, Asian Americans have been part of the American story for hundreds of years that America was settled from the West as much as from the East. That's right. That the conditions for Asians in this country were legally super complicated. They were excluded, discriminated against legally from the Chinese Exclusion Act to Korematsu. Sort of there was a huge targeting of Asians, actually. But in some ways, whether the cultural piece is as important as the legal piece, you know, to tell your story in an admissions essay, you're doing it because you want to get somewhere. Right. But what, how do you talk to corporate leaders who want to get to the top because they're not applying for that job with admission office? <laughs> right. So I think what happens is if you don't tell your whole story, sometimes you get uh, pushed to certain jobs that mm. you don't want to be in. Okay. Like so, for example, some of the people I interviewed, even when they're um, young coming in, right, they're not hanging out with uh, the managers. They're not hanging out with their coworkers, And all they're showing is their great technical skills, which, you know, a lot of people can have. They have lots of people with great technical skills. We already showed that with Harvard. There are lots of people with great scores, right? So, but if you're not hanging out with them, letting people know who you are, Mm -hmm. letting people know who your family is, your kids are, you know, um, that has an impact. Mm on who people may want to promote mm-hmm. later. So this lawsuit, when I'm listening to you, makes me feel even kind of sadder that it actually went forward, that, that Asian Americans were kind of pitted in this battle as if there's this false narrative that they had been discriminated against and this lawsuit is supposed to solve their problem, which it has no intention of doing. But it creates another box. And I've talked to students, actually, on this podcast who said it's, really devastating to experience your own group being used like this against your own school. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with them. It is devastating because what I think it does is it reinforces that um, the stereotype that Asian Americans are a model minority. 
And because they are the model minority, they should get into Harvard. That's really what they're arguing. That's what that's their whole argument. Which is also really hard on Asian American students. Exactly, because we're all not we're not the model minority. That's the whole point. We are not the model minority. And for some students, you know, and there was a I just read um, L.A. Times um, opinion piece today of this junior in Palo Alto saying, how can they do this? How can this case lose? You know, and he's saying, you know, but I've worked really hard. You don't know how, how hard I've worked. Mm-hmm. And there's a suicide cluster before. In Palo Alto High in School, Palo, terrible. Terrible. Terrible in Palo Alto. And so I was like, you know, you should yeah. write about that. And yeah. this case actually gives you a chance yeah. to write about how it affects you as an Asian American. Right. Yeah. You know, so. That it actually has really, it's really, it's. But what you're saying is a deeper story and a longer story. It connects to a deeper story. Yes, yes, yes. And it connects to a deeper experience that you now in your new research see is still playing out even at the higher level of corporate and America, right. et cetera, and government, et cetera. Right, exactly. So oh. when in employment, right, and I'm sure in well, employment, also in media and everything. Education. That, education, exactly. So that um, the longer story is this affirmative action is still required yeah. required not just in higher ed but way further on too so it's a long story it's not just the story of education would you think affirmative action policies um, when they're being debated how should people think about them when this because it comes up all this it could be race neutral mm. and that had played pretty well I think for a little moment I think there's a complication in it because during the Obama presidency, there was this other term, post-racial, which people used with abandon for a moment, then they got corrected. But it sort of stayed in the culture, as if now we've moved on, right? And right. And I, I, <laughs> you're saying we haven't used you know, st- I mean, Actually, your research and your experience shows we haven't moved on, We right? haven't moved on. We haven't moved yeah. on. Um, and when, and when uh, Sandra Day O'Connor said, in 25 years maybe, when do you think we'll get there? And is there even a point of getting there? I don't know. I mean, like, our our... our <laughs> Our demographics are, are continually changing, mm-hmm. you know, um, even with um, uh, the Trump administration. I don't know what's going to happen with our demographics. We're pretty diverse now in our country. So we are a country, as many people say, we're, there's a, it's a process. Mm-hmm. And our laws and our uh, how we fight for opportunity for everybody, mm-hmm. how we try to make a just country should change over right. time to reflect right. what we actually need. It shouldn't be pushed back to 50 years or 100 years ago. We're not trying to do that. We're trying to move forward. Right. You know, so that's that's what we have to keep looking and for. And do you think that position in your book, this new book, stuck? do you think it's important to have Asian Americans in leadership positions? I'm thinking of the Constitution of our court, our Senate. And um, I don't know the numbers, but Asian Americans, I can think of the Supreme Court. I don't think there are any, right? And I think senators, I can think of maybe Hawaii would count, but that's not Asian. <laughs> so yeah, are there any... Yeah, it's, it's, it's very few. It's, I don't I don't know and, the number. And is it important? In some ways, is it important for what reason? Sort of it's important, it goes back to why a diverse class at Harvard is important. Why is it important to have judges, senators, university presidents, CEOs of companies, managers, people who run sports teams, everything, all parts of culture? Or corporate America. Yeah, it's important because many of these people, they're the leaders. And Mm -hmm. they'll be um, handing down um, 
judgments or the way they even see about how they promote people, the way mm-hmm. they, they see what the new, uh, um, uh, how do you call how I know you don't like the word inclusive, but how do we include people? It's a fine word. I think the reason why I don't love the word is because it's not a legal term. I see. So I think people substitute equality, which is a legal concept, with inclusive, which sounds kind of nice. I, I invited see. you in, Margaret. Right, you right, joined. Right. Like that's not that's not equality. Right. I sort of have a worry that the word inclusive is the word to not say equality. I see. You know, so I, I use equality because in in my work on free speech. I want to use a legal term because otherwise they say, well, free speech is legal. Oh, yes, in your new book. Yeah. Yeah, so I put, I kind of say equality is the other thing. It's not feelings and inclusivity. Right. Inclusive sounds really soft to me in a way. I get it. I get it. It is is soft. You know, you can can join, but we don't really change anything. Right. Equality is like, actually, you're not just can join, but you're in it and you can change the way it's run. Right, right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so equality. The reason why you need people there is that they can actually affect change. Because mm-hmm. if all you have are people on the bottom, it's much harder to mm-hmm. affect change mm-hmm. in the way our society works. Right. Mm-hmm. You need people who are running these corporations, running the courts, running, you know, the the sports teams right. to be able to affect change. And so people may have different views, but having them there makes a difference already. Okay, because people see them. Mm-hmm. And if you can't see them, it's hard to get there, right? It's hard to even imagine yourself Is that there. right? So when you were in your high school in New, in New York, did you see people in positions of... So you're a professor now at CUNY. I mean, you're at one of the most prestigious research institutions in the world. You're a professor. <laughs> you are. So in some ways, did you see people like that around you? N- no, I only met one person like me when I was at Harvard. I had one Asian-American professor. Really? One. Yeah, one. No, maybe two. Okay. Two. But before that, even in high school, did you think you... I had? Yeah, I had only one teacher, okay. two teachers who were okay. Asian American in high school. So yeah, so it was very few. Yeah. And um, it's harder to get there. So when I graduated, so when I, I, so I'm a sociologist. But guess what? I majored in math at Harvard. I was uh, applied mathematics, major wow. with a minor in economics. I'm impressed but, because I'm no, impressed no. by math. No, but, but the re- <laughs> what I have to tell you, the reason why I did that was because I saw lots of Asian Americans doing that. And you thought that's what you do. That's exactly right. So you didn't see anybody majoring in sociology? No. And there was no professors in sociology? No. Probably... I think at that time I knew one person, but I was like, maybe that's not for me. But so, yes, it did affect me, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, in the long run, right. right? It did affect me, but then I realized I'm actually a good sociologist, and I should actually do that, and that's yeah. what I really want to do. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Right? Yeah. So I think for for people who are trying to move up, if you don't, you don't need an Asian-American mentor if you're an Asian-American. If you're black, you don't need a black mentor. But sometimes people who've been through that experience, they have insights to share with you. Right that somebody white may not be able to, right? right, right? right. So that's how come it's important to have people higher up, you know? And it's much more important for people at that level to actually share with people that, hey, I actually understand where that person's coming from. Maybe you have a misperception. Right. It's important to have somebody inside the room to actually share that to help you get promoted. Right. I learned this. I ran a mentoring program for several years for underrepresented faculty, and I learned a lot of things, really. It was really... I learned maybe more than anybody else, I think. But we learned that the senior people in the room got reverse mentoring from Mm. junior people who were underrepresented. The senior people tended to be mostly white men. 
because they ran the departments of philosophy, physics, astrophysics, economics, and they just tended to be that way because it's the generation. But they were in a room for an hour and a half where 25 faculty of color talked about their experiences in the university, and they walked out and said, I'd never been part of this conversation. And I said, well, of course you haven't been because people wouldn't talk about this in front of you unless there's a level of trust that you actually committed to changing something. And the reverse mentoring was quite effective that they actually were in the room to say, you're just here to listen. You're not here to mentor and dispense all your wisdom because you've already achieved this role, but you're supposed to listen to what the other experience is. And that changed their way of running it. So I think the reverse mentoring has to happen without putting the burden on then junior people from different backgrounds to talk to white men and say, this is how my life is. But there's actually in corporate, I took this out of corporate law. In corporate law, they have reverse mentoring programs. So that's excellent. That's excellent. You know, so in my study, nobody had mentioned anything like that, a reverse mentoring program. They were talking about having the lack of mentors. So there's the top-down mentor. They let, those mentors don't exist, but you can change the culture because they not exist yet. That's right. So if you don't have CEOs who are Asian or women or Asian American women, you're not going to be able to find a mentor. So you should say the purpose of this mentoring program is that you are in a room to listen to what it feels like to be a woman in our company. I think that the whole media debate around Ronan Farrow's book right now is that women are saying, even women from Fox News saying, uh, it's been open season and we've been targeted for decades and nobody was listening. That's right. That's right. But to actually have somebody say, now you have to actually listen to everybody. Right. But somebody at the top kind of has to say that, right? That's the other part, yeah. Yeah, yeah and that, that touches on something else because it's people sort of yeah. touching and deconstructing their own privilege. <laughs> it's right, very exactly. hard. They have to give that's up something. Hard. They have to give up something, right? Right. That's really hard to do. And that's what, to go back to the first point you made, it's seen as a zero-sum game. Right. Whereas you're saying... Diversity is not a zero-sum game. Yes, it's not it's one not. person loses, one person wins. He's saying it's actually there's a benefit to the greater good, the great all of us, right? Right. It's a, it is a greater good because people have to look at, you know, back to the Harvard situation, right, or the college situation. Yes, college has a set number of seats, you know, but there are actually lots of great colleges out there, right? All oh, right. Yeah. yeah. And then the same with the corporations. Yeah. It's not a zero-sum game. Right. And I think when you get to the work world, you realize... It really isn't a zero-sum game because people move, right. you know, from corporation to corporation. And that's what matters in the end. Do you expect that this case is going to go, um, that he's going to try other cases, this um, attorney? or it's, I mean, after this ruling in Massachusetts now, where does it go? So um, It will be appealed by them. It will be appealed. It's already They already filed their appeal. Um, and then... The court there, the the appeals court will decide whether to take it, and yeah. then the Supreme Court will decide after that if it, if after the appeals, right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, we can only, you know, see where the Supreme Court goes in terms of, you know, keeping forty years of precedent, right? Or whether they, you know, want to do whether, something else, whether they want to examine this issue, right? Yeah, whether, whether they want to examine it, um, discuss it. Um, and we don't know what's going to happen with right, that. Right. Um, we do know that um, if it's not this case that goes up there, um, Edward Bloom has already filed UNC again, a case against UNC, and also a case at University of Texas, that he, what he is trying to do is to get one of these cases up right. to the Supreme Court. I so th- that's his tactic. I think what's important by you pointing that out is 
that journalists and the media also realize there's a there's a direct strategy to get rid of affirmative action entirely and not to take this case and start to analyze on both sides and look at it and say, this is actually a larger process. And what you're saying, to look at affirmative action in a more holistic way rather than to take one case, get really worked up, sit there with bated breath, is it going to come out this way or that way, and then move on and say, there's a strategy behind it. Yeah, and this is the strategy of, I mean, it's... the Trump administration last year said they were going to file and check on uh, uh, separate schools to see whether they are using race-neutral methods, whether to see what or actually folded back Obama's ruling saying to keep race-conscious emissions alive. So it's actually setting a, um, a chilling effect on all higher education. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's a larger strategy. So you have cases going through. You have the ruling coming through from the Trump administration. And for many colleges that are smaller that uh, aren't as wealthy as Harvard, they can't afford it. I mean, last summer already, UNC spent over $18 million. And this is last summer, a year ago. We don't know where they're at now trying to defend um, their practice of race-conscious emissions. So it's actually hurting many, many schools. And many schools are going back to, you know, examine what they can really do. Right, right. No, it's, mm-hmm. that's, I think that's important to have this larger picture in mind and not to get focused on one case and say, yeah. is Harvard fair or not? That's not what this is about no. at all. No, no. So I really want to thank you, Mark. That's really a, a really fantastic conversation. And actually find your yeah. own story really inspiring. That thank you. you. <laughs> well, this combination of actually taking your own experience but then doing sort of research on this, on the experience, sort of the larger American experience of immigrants in this country. Well, my my experience at Harvard brought me to where I am now, and that's I think that's part of the, the story. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much. So the new book is going to come out. Um, next, It'll come out next summer. Next summer, it's called next Stuck. Okay. By NYU Press. Fantastic. Um, yes. So look for that. Yes, absolutely. And I I really want to thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me.